tonight's talk uh, explores the idea and possibility of not paying any attention to ourselves. And of course, we could say that meditation practice is uh, helping us, training us, supporting us to do the opposite, to pay uh, more attention, to uh, give a particular kind of attention uh, to every aspect of ourself. This is consistent with the the general notion of focus or concentration and even <coughs> to a large extent mindfulness. But tonight I'd, I'd like to make a case for the idea and uh, the benefit of not paying any attention to ourselves. And this idea came from a short uh, phrase that uh, I got from Thomas Merton uh, in a letter that he wrote to someone in 1968. I'm sorry, um, about 10 years prior, roughly 10 or 11 years prior to 1968, he died in 1968. And this was about 10 years before he died. He said, more and more, I try to pay no attention to myself. More and more, I try to pay no attention to myself. So to me, this represents a kind of spiritual maturity. And this is the, the first thing that struck me. I said, wow. At this point in... Thomas Merton's life, uh, he had really gotten somewhere. That was my sense of this. And perhaps this is due to my own uh, conditioning and training and study as a Buddhist teacher. Uh, and also maybe this language, uh, though a Trappist monk, maybe Thomas Merton was using this because of his, uh, his own recent influence. by way of Eastern thought, Buddhism in particular. It is an idea that fundamentally evokes the Dharma, the core uh, liberating wisdom of the Buddhist teachings. Fundamentally, there is a problem with the conception of self and how we relate to it. This is nothing less than the cause of dukkha, the distress or discontent or dis-ease or unsatisfactoriness that we all experience. This is, uh, the Buddha said, universal, and he said it's unnecessary. So suffering is optional even though we experience a lot of it in our lives. As Dharma students, we are confronted with this question. Is it possible that we are missing something in life by what we pay attention to 
in how we pay attention. Related questions concerning Merton's quote might be, what does it mean not to pay attention to ourselves? How do we not pay attention to ourselves? We might even be inclined to wonder if not paying attention to ourselves would render ourselves unnecessarily vulnerable to the world. Must we continue to protect ourselves, we might think? I would argue yes, uh, we do need to continue to protect ourselves. from oncoming traffic, from heat and cold, from abusive people, maybe even from anyone who consistently dysregulates our nervous system, perhaps until they or we are in a better place to re-engage. However, uh, this teaching is pointing towards something else. There is a habitual way that humans maladaptively over-focus on ourselves or what we believe the self to be. And this results in a few things worth noting. One, as I mentioned already, it causes suffering for us and often for other people. Two, it obscures an inherent well-being that often feels beyond our grasp. So there's something late, latent that we have access through, access to as a human being, access to as a meditator, uh, and yet it's often just out of reach. And sometimes that becomes more clear as our practice matures and we have some moments of real freedom and then they slip away and then we, then we, then we really get it oh yes it's just it's just out of reach it's so close it's so nearby and yet the way I'm relating to circumstances seems to keep it at bay and that can be quite frustrating Number three, it, it exacerbates our distance from insight and wisdom. And number four, and maybe I wrote this this way because uh, Thomas Merton is informed largely by Christian teachings. Depending on your faith tradition, it blocks our connection to and realization of something, whether that's emptiness, spaciousness, God, Buddha nature, etc., etc. So, this way of thinking, um, these examples might not seem too obscure if you have been meditating for a while, if you've been reading about Buddhism. If Buddhist ideas are new to you, this whole line of thinking might seem quite abstract. Merton's report that he was 
trying to pay less attention to himself, <clears throat> evokes the Buddhist ideal of anatta, not self. Buddhism implores us to see for ourselves directly and experientially that the self we imagine to be solid, independent, and permanent is but a fleeting sensory mirage. And as meditation practice aims to help us learn how to do, if we stop identifying with the experiences that make up the impression of a self, we come to a different understanding of who we are and how things work. This is the beginning of insight. And this is the central goal of the Dharma. It's the purpose of meditation practice. It is one way of talking about the path to liberation and the alleviation of suffering. Anatta, not self, is synonymous with awakening and freedom from distress. Thomas Edison was the first person to make a request for a patent for something that would later be called a motion picture camera. <clears throat> and this technology operated on a perceptual phenomena called persistence of vision. Persistence of vision. A thing that tricked the brain into thinking it was seeing seamless movement as the viewer stared through a tiny peephole. Perceptions of ourself in the world are formed in a very similar way. And this leaves us with an inaccurate picture of what's really going on. In a sense, Using this analogy, mindfulness practice helps us to see the phenomenon of persistence of vision for ourselves. As humans, we have been duped by a mechanism of mind similar to that of a motion picture camera. We take an apparent seamless sequence of thoughts, feelings, memories, emotions, sensations, ideas, to be a solid and permanent thing. We don't see the gaps between the frames, between the images themselves, between the sensations themselves, between sensations and thoughts, between images and memories, between memories and future desires. This establishes us within a dualistic worldview which forms an underlying misunderstanding that Buddhism calls avidya, not knowing. Meditation practice helps us slow down the perceptual field 
and observe isolated mind moments and to understand their relationship to one another, how they impact one another. Eventually, we come to understand cause and effect. To see how one thing leads to another more clearly. This is very useful when our way of relating to something in our environment causes unnecessary suffering. If we can see what is happening clearly, we don't have to suffer anymore. This is the underlying inspirational tenet of Buddhism. If we can see clearly, we don't have to suffer anymore. This implies that at a certain point, at a certain point, a choice enters the domain of experience. Right? So instead of getting pulled along unconsciously by our learned behaviors and tendencies, following old, often outdated, often unsuccessful patterns, there are now choice points where we can pause, reflect, uh, gather our stores of insights, assess the environment that perhaps, for example, is less of a threat, we can decide what to do, what's next. So in meditation practice, we talk, we, we talk often about giving up control or surrendering, but we do that because in the end we gain a kind of agency uh, that does in fact allow us to control, to some degree, the perpetuation of suffering, right? So this idea of surrender, common to most, maybe all spiritual tr traditions, loops back around with a whole new set of skillful behaviors, and we feel more in control. We're still going to live in a world that is unreliable. Particular things will happen to us that will throw us off, no matter how much wisdom we have. And yet, there's this growing sense of capability or capacity. I can manage myself. I can manage the world. Right? Managing the world doesn't have anything to do, or has very little to do, with changing it. It's not about changing other people. Um, but rather, is connected to a growing confidence that I can handle what I experience. That's the agency. That's the control. For example, if we become aware that resisting pain in the body causes further physical constriction and how that both hurts more and adds an element of anxiety, we can begin to be curious about the sensations of pain and investigate the pain with greater acceptance. Usually in the absence of resistance, the mind is more pliable. The physical body relaxes, and what was difficult becomes more easy to be with, even if discomfort remains. Sometimes the discomfort goes away entirely. Sometimes mindfulness cuts a thought midstream. Often what happens is that sensation remains, but our attitude toward it has changed. We have become intrigued with the rich tapestry 
of heat, cold, tingling. We are less identified. We are less absorbed in the idea of me and all the ways me tries to get something or to get rid of something. In the four foundations of mindfulness, uh, the third foundation of mindfulness is chitta, mind. And this is pointing toward the whole experience of thinking, experiencing memories, experiencing emotions. It refers to qualities or characteristics of mind, like constricted, tight, open, spacious, frenetic, collected, calm, gathered, concentrated, etc. Chitta includes uh, what we might call attitudes, friendliness, judgment, acceptance, hostility, care, carefulness, in all manner of thinking. What am I going to have for lunch later? What am I going to have when, when we're done with meditation today? I saw someone eating ice cream while I was trying to get here. Maybe I'll go get an ice cream. Thinking. Um, you know, if I had a little bit more money, you know, maybe I trade my car in and get something new that has good air conditioning, right? Mm-hmm. Just thinking. It's happening all the time, right? So, as I mentioned, and, and I think, you know, I'm going to make an assumption here that you're, you're putting. Uh, the talk together with the meditation and instruction. You know, we were talking, we were working in the meditation practice with, with mind and thoughts and how to be in relationship to them. And one of the things I said by way of review is that thinking is going to happen, and we don't want to make that into good or bad. Uh, and I even said, like, just remind yourself right now that thinking is going to happen, and that way, when it when it does, it's 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 not a big deal. It's not a problem. And yet. We were exploring not identifying with it. Uh, we were exploring the possibility of non-clinging. I, I used the phrase, not clinging to anything in the world. Meaning that no matter how important something seems to us, we can just note it and bring our attention back to the body. Did you notice your mind thinking? Yeah. Did anybody not... Was anybody's mind not thinking? No. Okay. So, I had this idea that because of the theme of my talk, that I would uh, get up in the morning one day this week and I would uh, note aspects of chitta that I was seeing during my 30-minute period of meditation. And the way I did it was I put a uh, recorder next to me and I uh, noted out loud. 
and then I put my earphones in and I transcribe what had happened during that short period of meditation. And I thought I'd share with you uh, some of that. See if this at all looks like what might happen in your own mind sometimes. Maybe I'll go swimming. I hope I don't see the new neighbors. (laughs) I should move my car. I'm glad I'm not a truck driver. I should lose a little bit of weight. I really want to eat a muffin. I want an espresso shot from the new coffee shop. I'm feeling sad. I wonder how my client session went yesterday. I want to go swimming. What kind of dog should I get? I wonder if person X is coming to the half-day retreat. I wonder where my notes are for the half-day retreat. (laughs) I hope I can find them. I hope the half-day retreat goes as well as it did last year. Where should I position the new gate and fence near the driveway? How am I going to get all of the weeds out of the driveway? (laughs) I think I'm behind schedule on my CPE preparation. I wonder if my case studies are good enough. Who will be the teaching team for the retreat in 2020? We have to get President Trump out of the office. (laughs) Biden seems very presidential. He's certainly very knowledgeable. I don't like all his decisions in the past. I like Harris. She appears flustered sometimes. Maybe it's just her passion. That wealthy entrepreneur shouldn't be running at all. He doesn't know what he's doing. The woman from Hawaii, the woman from Hawaii seems poised and dignified. I'm going to run out of coffee soon. I wish this truck would stop idling. It's so loud. I want to go for a swim. I should go to the gym today. I want to get an espresso shot at that coffee shop near the gym. The theme. I wonder how my talk will be received tonight. I never know how my talks will be received. I hope it's okay. I wonder if I'll write more in my new office. I really want to read The Genius of Birds. If anyone saw me sitting alone with my eyes closed, saying all these things out loud, they would think I was crazy. Maybe this is a stupid idea. I need to talk to our architect about the windows. I'm glad I don't work at a liquor store. I wish the coffee shop across the street had better espresso. (laughs) I wonder how much money I'm going to have to pay to get my fence installed. I need to focus more on every interaction with every person. There's no time exempt from practice. This concept to share with the group my thought process during meditation Seems like a good idea, but I don't know if it will be very useful. 
I think it would be better to have a dog. <laughs> I'm so behind on email. I hate email. I can't wait to go on retreat. I need to put bird food in the feeder. I want to go swimming. I should do some sit-ups. <laughs> and then the bell rang. <laughs> amazing. It's amazing. I've been meditating for 23 years. <laughs> this happened this morning. Okay? <clears throat> Notice how many times I said I. A lot of what occurs that is described as chitta in the Four Noble Truths is the I-making part of the mind. It is within the thought landscape of chitta that we perceive ourselves with a past, present, and future. It is chitta that reveals regret over the past, hope and fear related to the future, resulting from our relationship to things we wished had happened or didn't happen, in things that we hope will or will not happen. We can recognize in chitta that we are often replaying past events even if without regret, in that we are fantasizing about the future even if without distinct worry. It is in this thought landscape of chitta where we plan our days, make our to-do lists and pros and cons lists, evaluate the people we work with, judge the person who cut us off in traffic, or made us late, or, or made us a latte when we ordered a cortado. It's chitta that is constantly monitoring ourselves and our environment. Could I have said that differently? Do I look okay? Do they like me? Will they invite me back? Am I good enough? I have three short stories uh, from people that I have been with in the past week, <coughs> uh, and I have permission to share them, except for one, but she's my fiance, so. Um, and they are examples of experiencing and seeing through the self, experiencing the suffering as a result of the eye-making and breaking through it, established in wisdom and being more free. Um, so the, the first example, uh, someone said, uh, can we talk as soon as possible? Today might not work, but maybe tomorrow will you be home? Uh, I said yes. And <clears throat> So before the scheduled time, due to circumstances and a high level of stress, we ended up texting and then talking on the phone. And this person explained uh, that they were maybe going to leave their job because of how things had, had been unfolding over the past couple of weeks. And there had been something uh, very particular that had, that had come up in the, uh, on Friday before leaving and leaving work. And they said, you know, I might, you know, maybe just leave and take a sabbatical for a few months or something and then I'll just, 
you know, maybe go back in some different way. Uh, so when we finally got a chance to talk about it, uh, it was clear that the person was, in a way, I guess I could say, holding themselves accountable for um, uh, some difficult interactions. And not only holding themselves accountable, but questioning their value as a person, as a professional. Uh, and it, this idea that they were not capable enough, skillful enough, not helpful enough, had completely consumed them and they weren't able to, they weren't able to sleep. And uh, they decided that this uh, event they were at on the weekend uh, was uh, a place they shouldn't be, that they couldn't get grounded there and, and tend to these difficult thoughts. And, uh, you know, they said at one point, I'm, I'm kind of losing my mind and I can't even believe that it's this difficult for me. It does, that doesn't usually happen. Which then, if, right, you can see where this is going, and that made everything worse. Like, you know, like, not only was there this difficult work situation, but then that it couldn't be handled and that there was all this stress. So that's further identification. I'm one who handles stress well, and now I'm stressful. Now I'm stressed out, and so what does that say about me? So I'm going to jump ahead, and we're talking now. We're talking it through, we're talking it through, and I'm just listening, I'm listening, I'm listening. And the way I work with this person, I wouldn't be appropriate with 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 a lot of people, I know this person very, very well. And I just say, can I stop you for a moment? Can you, can you just stop talking? <laughs> and in the most loving way, I said that. <laughs> and I looked him right in the eyes and I said, you are so important right now. <laughs> Which is not something you would normally say to someone who's suffering. But this person has a lot of experience with practice and knows all of these ideas and philosophies, right? And nonetheless, I took a risk. Uh, and I could just see something relax in them. And they just, you know, they, they, they got reflective and they, and they said, you're so right. I said, it's all about you. It's just all self, right? And it just, it just snapped them out of it. Like they just got it. Now, very complicated thing <coughs> working with um, at work that caused all this dukkha, all this suffering. And so, you know, the suffering came back. They weren't immediately free. But they had enough understanding of themselves and of their mind, of mind, that with that direct and simple reminder, that direct and simple teaching, they were able to unhook. They were able to stop the clinging and disidentify momentarily. And just see it as a behavior pattern. Right? I'm just stuck. And I've been in the caught in this loop. So that's one example. <clears throat> the other example, there's, there's, not a, there's not a long story behind this, but I was uh, in, in a session with a student, and uh, they were explaining how 
they're, I, I, this is a person who I see every two weeks, and so they're explaining how the last couple of weeks have been. And, you know, they shared some details with me, and then they said, you know, Chris, mostly I'm just walking around all the time trying not to identify with shit. And I said, wow. I said, that's insight. That's, this is what we're talking about. I said, stop, hold the session. Can I write that down? That's why I'm giving a talk about this. <laughs> Do I have your permission to share that? That's verbatim. Mostly, Chris, I'm just walking around all the time trying not to identify with shit. That's the statement of somebody who's been practicing meditation for a really long time and can see it. They can see their mind. Right? That's what I'm doing. But as soon as you see that you're doing it, you're not as hooked as you were before. Right? Because in any moment of seeing it, the thing is going to, it's not going to be happening in that moment. And then the third example, a woman explained to me that there was uh, a lot of a lot of thinking, a lot of continuous thinking, and she wasn't able to to disrupt the thinking. And uh, she said that she had remembered earlier conversations that we had had. And she was dropping her attention down into the body. And when she did that, uh, she, she noticed a lot of movement. And what she reported to me was that she noticed, uh, well, she just said movement. I just said, no, I, I noticed a lot of movement. And uh, she said that she thought maybe she was also feeling like an increase in, in blood pressure, maybe, right? So I said, well, well, what did you do, right? And she said, well, I just focused on the sensation, right? Just focused on the sensation. So I said, oh, well, what happened? And she said, well, <clears throat> all that movement started to slow down a little bit. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, maybe, you know, maybe the blood pressure is also dropping. That's realistic. And I said, what kinds of thoughts were you having? And she reported that they were the kinds of thoughts that would have been, you know, stressful. So I, I said, okay, so then what happened as you, as, as I said, did you, did you, were you able to keep your attention on the sensation of the body? And she said, yeah, pretty good, pretty good. You know, I kept getting pulled away uh, by the thoughts sometimes, but, but I was, you know, really in, intent on... Uh, observing and feeling the sensation in, in the body, that moving sensation. So what she was doing is she was turning the attention away from the narrative, right? And, and turning it toward the sensory experience of the physical body. So I said, well, what happened as you continued to try to do that? And she said, well, the, the, the movement feeling slowed down, and I, and I felt like my blood pressure was dropping, 
and the thoughts went away. So, the practice of letting go of our many points of self-reference and self-maintenance eventually gives rise to a greater sense of spaciousness and emptiness in which what was conceived of as a self merges with the world. The self-other dichotomy falls away. Mindfulness practice is a practice of not paying attention to ourselves by unhooking from the story that we live inside, replacing temporarily the narrative of our life with a more simple observation of the process. Thinking arises, emotion arises, sensation arises. That's the process. That's what the mind and body does. And if we don't cling to or over-identify, things just keep rising and passing away. Replacing temporarily the narrative of our life with a more simple observation of the process, I might say the mechanics of mind. First an emotion, now a thought, a feeling in the body, another thought, a new emotion. We see how the mind works. To cultivate this deeper seeing and understanding is what is described as dispassion in the early teachings. <coughs> Becoming less and less interested in sensory indulgence, grasping for answers, and replacing them with many forms of craving with persistent, steady observation. And replacing the many forms of craving with persistent, steady observation. I wonder if this is what Thomas Merton meant, or something like this, when he said that he was mostly trying not to pay any attention to himself. In the Dhammapada, it is written, Better it is to live one day seeing the rise and fall of things than to live a hundred years without ever seeing the rise and fall of things. And from an ancient Chinese poem, when weary ends, things take themselves lightly. And when thoughts lull, the inner pattern abides. From the same poet, I offer this to adepts, come refining their lives. Try this old way of mine. Make it search enough. Okay, so I'll close there. Thank you for your attention.